0: This is Look West, a podcast from California's Assembly
1: Democrats.
2: San Quentin State Prison opened in 1852, and it looks its age. The thick white walls, furnished with razor wire trim on the shores of San Francisco Bay, is home to more than 3,000 inmates.
1: you guys have ideas
0: on you? Yes. yes. Need them now? Yeah. Oh. It looks like we're here, and it's... Uh, just as I remembered it when I came here about five years ago.
2: I'm Milena Paez. The Look West podcast crew traveled with Assemblymember Reggie Jones-Sawyer to San Quentin for a conversation with some of the inmates.
3: Reggie, oh, you, pleasure to Jesse, meet you. Nice to
4: meet you, sir. Good Hi, That's Rocky.
0: I'm Reggie. You'll be talking, Rocky. To yes. Okay.
2: Research shows that once a young person is caught up in the justice system, they become much more likely to offend again and enter what experts call. The school to prison pipeline. Can trauma informed care, a revolutionary concept in youth justice, play a role in preventing at risk youth from offending again? Joan Sawyer believes it can and has secured $37.3 million for youth reinvestment grants to do just that. Nigel Poor, a professor who co anchors the well known podcast Ear Hustle, produced by inmates at San Quentin, joined the assembly member to ask these men a simple question. Looking back, what did you need as a child that might have diverted you from the path you chose? Their answers may surprise you.
0: I'm here today to really get understand firsthand from people inside um, how they got here. Uh, I have something called Youth Reinvestment Funds, which I I found that if we want to close the school-to-prison pipeline, we really need to start at the beginning um, instead of waiting until... Um, at the end, I would love to hear what type of programs we should have for young people, or just hearing stories from people inside about their early childhood experiences and how, if we had provided some diversion programs, what would have really happened, what would really made an impact on their lives, so that we can make sure no fewer and fewer and fewer um, young people end up in, uh, in state prison. And so, with that, I'll be quiet and let everyone else introduce themselves. And
3: so, my name is Hugh Nguyen. Um, this is my 19th year of incarceration. I came from Santa Clara, uh, Memphis, Santa Clara County, Mid-Peters. Um For me, uh, before I go through all the detail, I'm not a good speaker, you know. So, what I'm here today is not about me either. What I'm here, what I'm here today because I do not want. Uh, another child followed my footstep. So I lost my father when I was only two months old. My mother diagnosed with cancer and PTSD. Um, my brother diagnosed with seizure disease. My sister passed away with cancer. And it took my mother 35 years when I'm in prison to tell me that I love you. It took me 32 years of my life to understand what a childhood trauma is. And I believe that if I have the class in middle school growing up where it taught me how to deal with my emotional intelligence, how to understand what violence is, I would not be here today. Because in my neighborhood, my mother had to walk around the neighborhood to pick up can to survive. And I thought in my neighborhood that when I get in a fight or other, other kid bullying me, it's okay to fight back. Violence is okay. So the, all those in, in, uh, emotional intelligence, I don't have it. I push it away until 32 years of my incarceration. Then I realized I do have it. So my question is that why why do why don't we have uh, a class where kids, elementary, going up, taking emotional intelligence. What is violent? Uh, for example, like my brother, he drink a lot. And when he come home, he yelling and he breaks stuff, broken all the stuff in the house. Um, my sister, after my sister passed away from cancer, I didn't know what is that. Now I realize it was domestic violence, domestic abuse. Um, if kids growing up understand those kinds of violence and learn to process the feeling, how I feel inside, and not to bottle up this feeling, then for me, then I won't leave here today. Because as I'm 16 years old, I decided that after home, nobody cared for me. And I joined again at 16 years old. So when I'm in in the gang, every time I steal something, my friend tapped me on the back and praised me, said, you know, you did a good job. This is what we need to do. We need to stay together. This is where family is, family. This is where I love it. Looking back then, I I regret it. And I wish that I could have those kind of classes that I have today like San Quentin here, offered me, then I wouldn't land myself here.
0: Thank you.
5: So I'm Rasan Thomas, known as New York. Um, there's so much to say, so much to unpack there. First of all, I'm, I'm glad that you're here because I feel like a lot of solutions are here. And one of the things I always think to myself is that what if I had emotional intelligence? What if I had the opportunities that, that provided at that San Quentin in my neighborhood before I ever came to prison? One of the things about me is that I've always wanted rehabilitation, even before I got locked up, even before my crime happened, before I committed my crime. It's just that I didn't know what I needed. Um, I didn't know where to find the answers at. And I was locked into a a belief system that had the wrong answers, but I thought it was the only solution available, right? The the, the fake survival excuses we make out there. And so coming to San Quentin, uh, coming to prison... Um, even on a level four prison, there wasn't anything available for me. But Jesus Buddha Muhammad NAA. So here I am trying to find solutions and trying to write a book about solutions for my neighborhood. But I don't even know why I did what I did. I know the surface motivations. I know it didn't make sense. I know I was part of the problems that are part of the solution. But I didn't have insight to why I really committed my crime. It took 13 years to get to a place where they had restorative justice and all kinds of programs. that, that not, not only could teach me how to write because the book I was writing was trash. Um, but also taught me um, that my trauma comes from two places. One, uh, constantly being called white boy, growing up in an all-black neighborhood and feeling rejected and feeling like alienated behind that, feeling like I wasn't good enough to be um, black but not good enough to be part of society either because I am half black and half Puerto Rican. Um, So I fought a lot, and I wasn't fighting to be tough. I was fighting for acceptance. And then a, a more traumatic incident happened when I was 17 and my little brother was 14. Uh, somebody from my neighborhood tried to rob us. And I'm thinking, you live two blocks away. Like, that's disrespectful. Like, you don't have no respect for me to try to rob me. So I'm trying to fight him. And then only once is a ring that's probably worth a 100 bucks. And I tried to fight him for his gun, and I got my brother shot. And when the shots went off, I ran and left my little brother. And I felt like a coward. And before that day, I never touched a gun. But after that day, I carried a gun all the time. And it just led to a, a cycle of violence over and over again. And so if I had the emotional intelligence, like once I'm in restorative justice, I learned that. like That was the real reason. I learned that in 2013, right? So I carried that trauma for the longest and didn't understand why I was being super thug and all, all these confrontations and all, these, all this drama I got myself into and all the harm I caused. And so if I had that emotional intelligence then. And so restorative justice is becoming a big deal in schools right now and with DAs, but it's being practiced wrong mostly in my opinion. Is being used as an alternative to locking somebody up. And that's cool, but it needs to be a way of life. Um, if it's taught like it's taught in prison as a way of life, then most of the time it won't even lead to violence because you'll have an army of kids that know, understand themselves better and heal from their own trauma. They know how to spot somebody else's trauma, and instead of calling him a weirdo, they'll know to help him because he needs help. right? they also know how to mediate conflict without violence and there'll be more of a community instead of, like, texting and all that and being disconnected from, from reality with video games and all the distractions
1: out there. Thank you. Uh, Robert, Robert Polson. Um, I was born in Minnesota. We moved to California in 1980. Um, and shortly after that, um, my father, he had a drinking problem. Um, military guy... Um, drank a lot, but he ended up leaving when I was right around eight years old. Uh, he just left. And I remember, I remember that that, like my view of the world was, uh, changed that day. Um, when my father left, my father was like my superhero. Um, and I remember as an, uh, that was the first time that I felt rebellious. That was the first time that I may have walked outside and kicked a planter off our, our our front porch, our deck, but as I got older and as I've done work and as I've sat in groups and I've sat in these self-help groups around uh, institutions in the time that I've been in, I've come to realize that, you know, a lot of behaviors uh, that I've exhibited have, I've either seen or have been done to me. And I think that Mr. Hugh had a great point in saying that um, it really can start in school. I remember going through school not ever really experiencing how to manage uh, being hurt. I never thought that I could be, that I could express hurt. I never thought, I was. I didn't think I was allowed to do that. And so my hurt became anger. My pain became anger. My needs and wants were just completely foreign to me. Um, but what I've realized is that, you know, this there's this nonviolent communication classes, these, um, you know, these guiding your rage into power things, these things are real. And even as I'm older, you know, I'm older now, I'm 43 years old and, uh, I'm going through these experiences and I'm learning about this emotional intelligence. I'm learning that, you know, there's a process before anger shows up. And I think that if we can show, if we can show teenagers or young men and women, um, that maybe come from these types of homes or that come from these types of neighborhoods, it doesn't have to be in your home for this stuff to be alive and well in your life. And there has to be a way, there has to be a way that we can show them or, or at least expose them to a way of thinking of understanding that it's okay to be hurt. It's okay that you feel a certain way. And I think that society paints this picture of how everybody's supposed to look and feel. And it, it's, it's sad. Um, it's, it was sad for me. And I'm not saying like, I'm not saying sad, like, Oh, poor me. I'm saying it was sad that, you know, it took me so long to really understand that a, a way that I was feeling instead of a way that I was thinking about it. And I think that there's a big, there's a big difference in there. Uh, a lot of people tell you about what they think. They don't really tell you what they need or feel. And I think that if we can in, if you or we or whoever as a society can invest in that, whatever that looks like, then I think that's, that's at least a stepping stone towards um, breaking the cycle of violence or the cycle of adolescence seeing this violence in, in our society.
6: Um, My name is Antoine Williams, and I'm the sound designer for a podcast called Ear Hustle. Um, for me, I don't know. I feel like the, our adolescent years are not only the most confusing times, but it is the times in our lives where we are both the best actors and the best, you know, kind of magician and sports player you can be for the simple fact that life is presented to you as a game, and Especially growing up Dealing with Dealing with youth And and the urban community You have to Play a part You have to Become something Because you're looking For acceptance You're looking for Validation You're looking for Understanding And it's not necessarily About talking There's never a conversation There's always either um, I'm going to tell you What to do With no explanation Of why It's Because I'm your mama Do it And like Boy you don't question me. You don't question God. It's like you talk like you don't even question God. So, you know, the people that are have any kind of authority in your life, you're taught to not question them. And then it takes away your voice. So as a child, you react. And you react when you get to a point where you feel so emotionally overwhelmed that there is a physical manifestation of that pain in that voice. So you lash out. And so I feel like looking at our youth, looking at the, the day and age in which we live living in, um, they always say, like, oh, you know, get therapy. Like, you need to talk to somebody. But they they try to talk. I've tried to talk. And I grew up in a home where filled with addiction and domestic violence and, uh, you know, my sister and I were abandoned. My brother was incarcerated. Uh, my My parents weren't there. So even in moments when I wanted to express when i wanted to reach out i couldn't it was shut down because i needed to be hard and even just the way that that the the male role belief system of men don't cry uh, act tough suck it up deal with it like all of these uh cliche statements that are passed down from generation to generation it's just a blanket to cover more trauma and now we have now we're dealing with again esteem issues we're dealing with uh, uh value issues we're dealing with um Phys- like Physical trauma You know, we've been abused And we've been misused And we've been mistreated So I'm looking at the ways to which Can Change that And I'm thinking about I'm thinking about something that New York was saying New York was talking about how San Quentin offers you All of these groups and these programs And the one thing that uh, this place Doesn't offer is teachers But we don't need teachers We need facilitators. And that's why San Quentin has been so productive. It's been so progressive. It's been so effective. Because it's men and women that come and they offer a space. They create a space. They maintain a space to where we all can get what we need out of it. I I graduated from Crenshaw High School. I went to at least... The Shaw. The Shaw. (laughs) You know, I went to at least like six or seven different elementaries all the way up to high school. So... It was just always go to class, do this, do your work, turn it in, go to the next class, sit down, listen, do your work, turn it in, go to the next class, sit down, listen, turn in your work. I was conditioned just to listen. I wasn't conditioned. I wasn't, even, I wasn't given an opportunity to say, what is it that you're feeling? What, are you, what is it that you're dealing with? Like school was school and home was home. Nothing about the two overlapped. So in, in, in school, I had to be somebody. This is why I've become a, a phenomenal actor. I had to play the part as if I I was okay. I could smile all the time. I could laugh on cue. But when I had to go home, I had to worry about, like, okay, is my mom going to be there? Am I going to get jumped? Like, I got to pick my routes. I have to have, you know, ways to navigate the world. And there was no overlap. Like, there was no teachers that cared enough to find out about my home. And it wasn't nobody at home that cared enough to find out about my teachers or the, the environment that I would spend eight hours a day at, at the very least. And I'm just thinking about if we have an opportunity to create and maintain a space where anybody, child, adult, uh, can offer truth and be vulnerable. This is why restorative justice works, because you're putting two people that have been harmed to some degree and there's a dialogue. There's a conversation. And it's what is it that we need from both uh, both sides of the spectrum to find some healing, to find some connection, to find some way to benefit everybody involved. And that comes with just storytelling, just being honest, just saying, hey, I dealt with this and I reacted in such a way. And for that, I'm sorry. And I, and I think with the most surprising thing I've ever witnessed, especially in San Quentin, is how— Extremely apologetic people are, and it goes to show that at our at our core, people don't want to do wrong. Even when we make the wrong decision, we made the decision thinking it was the right decision. Be it because of we needed validation, or we didn't want to be seen as something else, or we wanted to be accepted, but we made choices thinking that they were the right choices. And that goes to show like we weren't even emotionally intelligent enough to know the difference between. I'm making this choice for myself or I'm making this choice for some kind of exterior reason. And like just unpacking all of that, as New York was saying, has allowed me to grow in ways that I didn't even think is possible. But it also makes me look back at every turning point in my life and say, was I being more authentic? Was I being genuine here? Was I being an actor? Did I play a role? I can go to school and, you know, and turn all my homework in and everybody will think that my home was good because of... The way I presented myself in school. But then outside of school, in the streets, I look completely different than what I, the way I would look in front of my mother. I was three different people in three different roles in my life that carried on from like 24 hours a day. From 7 to 3, I was a good kid. From 3 to 10, I was in the streets. And I was somebody else. And then from 10 to 7 the next morning, I'm my mother's son. I'm that angel. I'm the one that will go get her whatever she needs. And, you know, never backtalk. So to be three different people in one world that's demanding um, almost, like, superior status on all of those, like, I see how kids are overwhelmed. And I feel like if we can get more facilitators, people to just, again, create a space, maintain a space, and offer ears, offer um, advice, encouragement, suggestions, not necessarily you need to do this. I, I think that could start to close that uh, school-to-prison pipeline.
4: Thank you. So I'm Nigel Poor. I'm the co-host and co-creator of your Hustle. And I only like to talk about things that I actually experienced and know about. So I, I can talk about the work I've done in prison. I think what, what I've noticed that makes a big difference in prison, and I, and, I, and I believe it would help anywhere, is that people need to be able to tell their stories. But there's a second part to that. People have to listen. You can talk as much as you want, but if there's nobody there to listen and take it in, it doesn't have the needed effect. So I was when I was listening to what everyone was saying, I was thinking about how important school is and how teachers need to be, in some ways, those people who listen. But if they're not paid well, if they're not respected, if the schools aren't given the resources they need to have all these extra programs, it's a real problem. Mm-hmm. And teachers... Aren't respected enough. So, you know, I would say we need to support education, but we need to train people to actually listen.
0: Yeah, I'm listening to um, both New York and and Antoine. I'm in in a little bit of you. I'm hearing this. this, And when I was here in the yard, um, they were talking about the different ethnic areas in the yard, Mm -hmm. and what I learned today that that they're set up that ways for defense, so nobody would come in and harm you. Which I I didn't think of it that way. I thought of it as a way to hurt people as they came toward you. I never looked at it as... Some people look at it as a way to keep yourself safe. And then I hear from you two talking about defending yourself and whether you're, you're multiple personalities or, or dealing with, with the death of your brother is about defense. Mm-hmm. And for for... In my limited time in, in 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 public school at mount Vernon i mean I, I went to school with a with a guy named T. Rogers who is considered one of the original founders of the blood and he was one of the smartest people I ever he's still alive one of the smartest people I ever met and we sat side by side, but I do remember walking home because he had an early gang called the Exterminators, and they would just pick off people for the leather jackets and stuff and I would have to figure out how to get from my house to school and then figure out how to get from my house from school back to my house i know when there's a bunch of individuals standing on a certain corner certain places i know how to get around that Mm -hmm. and i still have that knot in my stomach from those days trying to figure out how to get home Mm -hmm. and so i in, in some ways i understand what that is but what makes it bad is a middle school student shouldn't feel that way.
4: Can I respond to something before I forget because my mm-hmm. memory's not great? Um, you said something that points out a very important um, <clears throat> thing that needs to be addressed. You made an assumption about why the races are divided mm-hmm. out in the yard. But when you talk to people, you actually got a different understanding. So it adds to why, why people want to come in and help. But if you don't understand the nuance of what you're trying to change, you actually can cause more trouble. Correct. So, that's why I'm here. Yeah, so it was very really interesting to hear you say how, you know, that, that's, that was a big thing to actually learn. And I had that assumption too when I came in here why the races are divided. But then when I listened, um, I learned a lot. And now I can be more, hopefully, more effective. So it really is important to listen.
0: Yes, and yeah. especially for me because um, I'm one of 120 people that make laws for 40 million people. So I, got, I can do more damage or I can mm. do more help. Absolutely. So I, I really have to make sure that I listen. Learn and take it in, and so that if I do make a law, that is the right law. Absolutely. And so be careful what you say to me today.
1: Oh, we are. <laughs> we're, we're very. We're very, well. yeah, yeah. We're very
0: good. Good laws coming today. Yeah. <laughs> but um,
5: you, you brought up a very good point. Like that was my um, one of my issues in high school was not feeling safe in every school. In fact, um, mm. and it was crazy because I went to decent schools. And I started off getting all A's and B's. And then somewhere along the line, it became too much to carry all these books home. I swear to God, I went to August Martin and they gave so many books. You couldn't carry all that and defend yourself or run if you needed to at the same time. So I had this new rule where school needs to stay in school. If I can't do it in the morning or during lunch or or homeroom or something, it's not gonna get done. And so I went from this A and B student to this CD dude, right? And um, my last year of high school, I ended up finishing in Detroit, Michigan um, mm-hmm. because of a safety transfer. I got into trouble with some, some bull crap, but um, I stood up to some bullies that were over my head. They were organized gang. I stood up to yeah. them, and standing up to them was like a, 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 a mistake because I, I, I couldn't live in New York anymore. They were that vicious. Um, oh. Yeah, it was that, it was that bad. But um, so feeling safe. But part of that feeling safe wasn't just like uh, not, not having a good system where— to keep people that don't go to school from hanging out outside in front, coming up looking for trouble, it's a lack of trust between the community and, and authority figures, through kids and authority figures, not just cops, but also teachers. And so, like, what can we do for teachers and cops to get that trust back? You know what I mean? Because it's lost. Um, it's, it's lost. And because it's lost, I don't feel like if, I, if them cats waiting in front of school, I don't feel like I can tell my teacher about them, or I can tell the cops about them. Because that doesn't sound like a good solution. That would give me ostracizing my neighborhood more. And it's crazy because the origin of not cooperating with authorities didn't start from a position of protecting criminals. It didn't start from a position of, I want crime in my neighborhood. It started from a position from the civil rights movement when the police were clanned at night but cops by day. And they sucked dogs on people that were marching for their rights. Or when I grew up in Brooklyn in Brownsville where a cop shot a 10-year-old kid and just this hostility between cops in the neighborhood where you feel like they're not there for you. And even when they talk about coming to clean up, they clean cleaning up by putting people in jail a million years. And like my my uncle stole my VCR because he's on drugs. I remember when he was a good uncle before the drugs. I want you to just get him off the drugs. I don't want you to strike him out, right? Um, In my uncle's case, they called the police on him for a nonviolent crime and he died and was brought back to life. So I definitely don't want to call the police and get my uncle killed. And so there's this thing that that the cops have lost their um, trust in the community. And it's even worse now. A lot of cops are doing some good things to try to get it back. But I really feel like they need to take more initiative to be, be the ones to, like, get to know your neighborhood. Because if you get to know your neighborhood, you won't have these hostile, you need better training too, but just getting to know your neighborhood, being part of the restorative justice dialogue, and and coming in that room where it's going to be confidential, where we can tell the truth and start worrying about prosecution, because we don't want nobody to go to jail, we want to fix the problems, right? And so we need to have this safe space like he talked about, where Kyle could be like, I messed up that day, man. You know what I mean? Be honest, and just be honest, and just be honest and apologizing, it goes so far to building trust. Until so you can do that, then, and then teachers, if, if you're out to suspend me or judge me, I'm telling you the truth, I'm telling you what I'm going through, and you don't believe me, you're looking at a certain way, you think I'm evil, and you're not respecting what I'm going through in my household, or you're pushing this line where there's no excuses, you don't believe the dog ate my homework, so you're not gonna believe that Billy robbed me from my book bag and my homework was in it. <laughs> but I really think Rob from my book bag and my homework was in it, right? And so it's about um, building these spaces where where, where t- teachers and cops can get the trust of the community back. So that we, we can create safe spaces. Because there's no safe space, I can't concentrate on my schoolwork. When the when bell hit right. three, like you said, you were good at navigating. I can't run. I'm the slow. <laughs> I ran a marathon in <laughs> six hours, 15 minutes, and 23 seconds. At the end of that marathon was nobody out there but me and the geese. That <laughs> was the last one, right? I cannot run. So I had to find some negative alternatives, right? Or I chose to find negative alternatives. There you go. Right? And so how can we make it so it's not so hard for me to make good choices when I get out of school. And I think that starts with getting that trust back and having those police and those teachers being part of the restorative justice circles, create that safe space where it's confidential, nothing in that room could be used to prosecute anybody. And we could be honest, if we can't do that, then the trust will never get there. Yeah.
4: But that means the administration needs to be backing it. The teachers and the individual correctional officers or policemen can't do – women can't do that on their own. So there needs to be administration that supports it. And there's probably a lot of individuals that want to do that. But if it doesn't come from the top down, it's really difficult.
5: It is. But we're going to make a law. We got him
0: (laughs) And I've had some great conversations with uh, CCPOA, the correctional officers, about um, uh, having more correctional officers that are maybe teachers. Maybe yeah. degrees in sociology, psychology, and I'm a, back to I'm about to spend some money. I'm also believe that if they do take that extra step, that we should pay them more. Yeah, yeah. Like you said, I yeah. In, in, in full disclosure, I have two kids that are teachers, so I definitely believe they should be paid more money. Yeah. And so I I, I know they are the answer to my making sure that kids can read at third grade level. Yeah. And we should. That return on investment right there, if we paid teachers more and we provided more social workers and psychologists in schools, um, the, the, the dividends paid out would be immense.
4: And smaller class size. And smaller
0: class size. Yeah.
6: So if, if you think like how New York was talking about trust, trust is, I mean, it's it's beyond key. I think it's a, it's the core of the change. But trust has to be enacted when it comes with, I'm not perfect. That's the one thing that is the, it's the hardest thing for almost anybody in law enforcement to say. Either I made a mistake or I'm not perfect. Because that shows that I don't have to hold you to this standard of perfection. And then when you fall short of that, my world crashes. Same for parents, same for teachers. If teachers come into a classroom and say, hey, look, I'm not perfect. I might make mistakes, but I'm, I'm actually here to help you. That'll give anybody an opportunity to say, okay, you know what? Okay. I can see that. Okay, so if something happened, hey, I told you I wasn't perfect, but I'm here to help. Mm-hmm. I'm here to work this out with you. Right. And when it and that comes with being accountable. Like we are human beings.
4: Well, it goes to like New York talking about emotional intelligence, absolutely, and teaching empathy,
6: absolutely, right?
4: And those are two things that make a huge difference. But it's not valued in our society. Being empathetic and having emotional intelligence um, isn't a sexy trait to have.
0: Well, how do we? What you're saying, how do you interject that? How do you let them become human? How do you let them come to the community and and talk about that without tearing down the whole law enforcement? And
6: Um, that's the the restorative justice practice. It's mm. incarceration in the courts should be the ultimate. Like, there is no further than that. When a lot of these situations, these school fights, these, Mm -hmm. you know, elbows to the face, Mm -hmm. these are minor, um, I don't want to say infractions, but these are like small things that can be handled in intimate settings. Right. To where an understanding is had. Because until then, it's, oh, as soon as you do wrong, you put into a system, a system that will make sure that you will always be a part of. You're part of my family now. You're part of this system. You belong to me to some degree. In here out of here your name your record your history you belong to me when it doesn't have to get there when a lot of it can just be what do you need in this moment to feel safe to feel heard to uh, find healing on both parts and once that conversation is had then it's you know what sir I'm really sorry I didn't mean to elbow you in the face I've been dealing with this, 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 and now oh, it's, okay, I see it. Or even for the cop, man, mm-hmm. I shouldn't have grabbed you like that. Mm-hmm. I had a bad experience. Like, oh, I didn't know you experienced that. You know, to where it's, I mean, then it's, I see where you're coming from. My perspective is no longer just mine. We share that. We have a collective perspective. We have a collective understanding of what can happen, and that could ho- hopefully be the thing that, again, starts to curve this epidemic that we're dealing with. I think it comes
5: with we're, we're thinking differently, right? Uh I sound like Apple now. Excuse me. <laughs> but uh, uh, the, the guy Wall Street used to be a Curtis Wall Street Carroll, right? One of the things he says, one of the most valuable things you can have in the world is relationships. And so when I think about that, the most valuable thing you can have is relationships. I think about the importance of relationships. And the police don't have a relationship with their community. There was a guy that came in from the... the somewhere in Switzerland, you know, the, 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 that, that area over there. And he was like the administrator of a prison. And the prison is real loose security-wise. And he said the, most, the best form of security is a relationship with the guys incarcerated. And I see mm. that at San Quentin. Here it's not a hostile environment with the guards. It's not a hostile environment with staff. They let plenty of volunteers here, mostly by the Dell supervision, just, you know what I mean? And San Quentin is constructed to be a security nightmare. There's five tiers of floors. I mean, you know, the seal doesn't only comes at that count time, mail time, or the search something. So most of the time, they're on the first floor, and you're away on the fifth floor, and there's no guardrail. Wow. But because of great relationships, it's one of the safest places I've ever been. And so we we have to rethink. Like cops are thinking macho, solving everything with violence. But the thing about that is you become when you, what you hate. Also. Um, When you solve things with violence, it destroys everybody involved. If you notice, cops have high divorce rates, high suicide rates, high alcoholism rates. So does correction officers. It destroys everybody involved. So we have to think differently. Like show people that the way we're solving things with violence is destroying ourselves. And um, we always hear this guy talking about make America great, right? But a house can never be great if it's divided. If If your solution to every problem in America is destroy it, like we cancer instead of people, then we'll never get anywhere because you're destroying the, some of the best of us. And San Quentin is my evidence, right? This place has provided the opportunity for volunteers and nonprofit programs and all to come in and do their thing. And what is produced are awesome folks. There's a guy list of names I can give you right now that not only are went home are doing well in society, but are out there changing society. Jason Jones, De Weaver, Earline Woods, Annan Khan. I can go on and on. Um, Kenyatta. I go on and I'll get a list of names. The guys with the Richmond, they're they doing some amazing things out there, man. Guys are producing things and, and coming up with answers and solutions. And so I think that goes to show, us, from a marketing perspective, what's in it for the community. Our children are the future. We can't walk right past them. and we invest in, some, in, in, in them and treat them as part of society instead of alienating them or treating them like Martians or, or, or something other than, we will have great people and we'll have a great country if we continue to like to um, send them straight to prison or not care about their development, then we're not caring about our own future, our own developments.
0: And I, and I know where I'm co- I come from, LA County is trying to make a change. Um, one, they they want to take the mental health facility out of LA County jail, hmm. which is the largest mental health facility yeah. and build a whole new mental health facility just for that. In addition, Terry McDonald, who used to be um, part of this system, um, that was hired away by the county has a um a juvenile justice program which looks like a university campus Mm -hmm. um where she's probation over probation now and she's trying to new things and i know la county has a diversion program in courts where they want to go ahead and 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 move move our young people um out of the criminal justice system but into into diversion programs uh and, and after listening to you um it sounds like, did, did they call you to get any suggestions on how to run this stuff?
1: <laughs> <laughs>
5: no, we're no, we, no, we we here yeah. yeah, <laughs> we to help. Nigel.com. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: because as we said earlier, probably people in here can give you some great ideas on how to make these programs very successful. Yeah. Um, you just gave me some ideas that I didn't even think of. That I need to take back, and I probably number one thing is they need to come up here <laughs> to, <laughs> to, to learn something you know, to to get to make a stronger program yeah. because they're, they're going to, what they will do is probably base it on people who've never been inside. Absolutely, people who've never um, shared their youth experiences um, with them and. And, and have asked them, how do we design this program so that young people don't say Should
5: that be one of our laws? <laughs> if, if you make a law about something with these 120 people, you need to experience it, visit it, 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 talk
6: talk to somebody who experienced it, visit it. I like that. How can you make proximity. a law about something and you never had any proximity? A requirement. See, pro- proximity, change. again, it changes the dynamic. When teachers are closer to students, students are closer to teachers. Wow. When teachers are closer to parents, parents are closer to teachers. That makes everything this, this it's like a... a a tight-knit community not fear fear has been trying to drive us mm-hmm. our entire life the first fear that was ever instilled in me was a fear of God for the divine power that's created me why should I fear that and then fear my parents well you bet not say nothing and then I got a fear the people in the streets and then I got a fear being kicked out of school and then I got a fear going to prison and then I got a fear being shot and then I got to fear this everything in our lives is driven by fear Prisons are driven by fear. Lock them up. They're monsters. They're this, they're that, they're that. When fear has gotten us in the worst places
4: we've ever been in our lives. It's also an exhausting emotion. Exhausting.
6: Right. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it, it drains us yeah. of every kind of positive energy we could put into the universe. Just being afraid that, again, just to even to be able to recollect that, that gut feeling of I have to navigate the streets when I leave school. That's terrible. And you were 14, 15, 16, maybe 17 years old. And you have a fear that's been enacted in your core. Like we need to change that. And by doing that, I, th- I mean, we, I think we can do that.
4: Now, all those things take time. I mean, that, I think mm. that's the other important factor is yeah. there aren't quick fixes, right? And people want that. But the, the things that we're talking about take a long time to unfold to see the results of. And they're worth it. But people have to be patient, too. Yeah. When it's a dire situation, it's hard to be patient.
5: But going back to that, that wasn't the d- deterrent. Because when, emo- I mean, when, when you're making sense, fear works, right? But emotions supersede intelligence. So I know the streets got the death penalty. I know there's such and such team or major, but right now they're jumping my homeboy. I'm going to help my homeboy, and no, i got to leave New York. Now intelligence is back when, when, when my emotions are, are, are calmed down. But in the heat of the moment, we don't make sense. So drama therapy, restorative justice, these are ways where we can control our emotions. Emotions are the number one cause of mass shootings, right? Most of them are not mental health patients. It's emotions. So we deal with the emotions... We can we can handle our situation circumstances a lot better, and that will be pretty instant if we can get that into the culture. Because the circumstances might not necessarily change, but how I respond to it or how I react to it could be way different immediately, right? But we but it is a culture shift. It's going to take time for people to buy in. That has to be the administration first. That to support the teachers in it, and in order to get the students to do it, everybody has to buy into it. it has to be real. It has to be genuine. If that ain't there, if that safe space ain't there, then
0: yeah. and, and could unfortunately, backfire. fear. Runs this world, mm-hmm.
6: absolutely.
5: Not
0: love.
4: Not yeah. love. Fear and money.
0: But how's Fearing that working money. for us? For money, it's not working too well. That's why Martin Luther King always talked about love.
6: Mm-hmm.
0: Mahatma Gandhi, love. Jesus Christ, love. That's mm-hmm. the most important thing. And when we, when we do this kind of work, we need to inject that yeah. in, in, into it. And, and especially our young people. If you you can't love young people, mm-hmm. then there's something. And you got a whole another problem yeah. we need to talk about. Before we finish, Kels, you and I were talking earlier in the yard, and I understand you have a hidden talent.
7: So it's a it's a song I wrote for a program here at the prison called the Mike Sessions, and you know it's a platform in which they let uh, they allow young people to you know utilize their talents and express themselves in ways that if it was available to us in our communities we probably wouldn't have, you know, made the decisions that we made because we would have had different outlets to curb, you know, what was happening to us, you know, as youth. So uh, the name of this song is just, uh, it's called Restore My History. I'm just going to share a verse, um, just share one verse with you guys. So it goes, um understand my mindset coming from common complex, violated and raped in my riches from cold oppression. I'm destined for failure mostly. My thoughts hanging me slowly. I purposely so indulge in the tragedy of my reality, frantically searching for answers to hammer what I encounter. I'm bound for system structure, embrace it, manifestation, I'm plaguing my generation with poison your malfunction. No love caring, my being, I'm possibly European from ancient times with these lines I'm just stating the world's reply. Never mind my tortured soul when I'm speaking from all the rope being hung, beaten and damaged and planted with self-destruction. I'm representing this color and programming my brother that killing his mirror image is gangster handling business suppressing my feelings daily allowing me to be crazy i take advantage of panic depleting my people's mantle i'm just addicted but really i'm just conflicted and tired of being under the tide trying to restore my history so
0: very good yeah all right
2: how can you help at-risk youth get the resources they need the first step is ensuring your local city or county applies for a youth reinvestment grant by the March 29th deadline. To find the necessary contact in your area, please visit asmdc.org/jones-sawyer. Again, that deadline is March 29th. Act quickly to ensure these funds are invested in your community and allocated to the appropriate organizations. Special thanks to Lieutenant Samuel Robinson and to Robert Polson, Hugh Wynn, Felipe Kelly, and Juan Espinoza. Big thanks to the folks at Ear Hustle Podcast and San Quentin Radio, Nigel Poor, Rasan New York Thomas, and Antoine Williams for sharing your stories with us. I'm Milena Paez. Thanks for listening to Look West.
1: The Look West podcast is produced by the California Assembly Democrats. Please subscribe and rate this show wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Thanks again for listening to Look West.